Let's turn our Bibles to John, or if you're already there, John chapter 12, I commence reading from verse 20 to 26. John chapter 20, rather chapter 12, verse 20 to 26. Now among those who went up to Jerusalem at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I said to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone saves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone saves me, the Father will honor him. Let's just pray together once again, shall we pray? Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning, giving you thanks for the opportunity for us to meet in this place. We ask, O oh God, that as we've gathered to meet in this place, we pray that may our gathering be one that will be pleasing in your sight. But also pray, dear God, that as we've gathered in this place, cause that each one will be attentive to the worship of you and will be attentive to hear you speak to them. Father, we are mindful of uh, the weather and the fact that it's getting hot and our bodies have not been so sanctified that we may not, we are not feeling the effect of the same. We pray that you cause each one of us to be disciplined enough to stay awake and to hear that which you have for us. These things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, as I've prayed, so blessed is he who does not doze, for he will hear the word preached. Woe unto you if you dozes, for unto such is not the kingdom of God. We are back in our study of the Gospel of John, and I'd like to just do a quick reminder of what we looked at, and which was about a month ago when I last preached and just before I went on annual leave. We had considered verse 12 through to verse 19, and we considered the triumphal entry and its significance. We spent our time looking at the importance of that uh, triumphal entry and what lessons we can draw uh, for ourselves. We did learn that what was revealed or what is revealed in what is recorded in the portion of scriptures about the triumphal entry of Christ 
is the fact that first we saw these false concepts that people have about the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw many simply wanted to have Jesus as their earthly king, the king of Israel. And we see that this false concept continues uh, to be widely held in the hearts of many. Uh, we also saw, secondly, that this triumphal entry shows or reveals the true concept of the Lord Jesus Christ. We noted that the Lord Jesus Christ, as recorded in John, reveals to us that he came for one particular purpose. He came to be the savior of the world, not as the way the people of Israel thought of him, but the way the Bible had said that the Messiah would do when he comes. And then in the third place, we looked at the common reactions uh, of uh, people concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in the reactions of the Pharisees. There was the reaction from the disciples who did not understand the significance of the triumphal entry. Then we saw the multitude who simply went there on account of the fact that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And then in the, we also saw the reaction of the Pharisees towards the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, they were simply plotting the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we come to look at verse 20 through to verse 26 of John chapter, four, chapter 12. And there we see the purpose of Jesus' death. John underlines for us what truly the purpose of Christ is. And the underlining drama in the comparison of verses 20, and 20 to 22 and verses 19 is the sight of the disregarded Gentiles coming to seek the Lord Jesus Christ while the established elites or the established Jewish priests simply plotting the death of Christ. And John records for us so that we see this drama that is unfolding. That these individuals, on one hand, who claimed to be religious, who claimed to understand the scriptures, instead of seeing what is happening, going back to the scrolls and understanding what the prophet had said concerning Christ, they plotted the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on the one hand, the Gentiles represented by these Greeks who went to seek the Lord Jesus Christ, a people who may not have been privileged in terms of religious knowledge as the priests, yet going out of their way in trying to look for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see in there is that what makes the difference is your faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not so much whether you've been religious or whether you've spent your time in the church 
or whether you're one who has no regard for religion, or one who doesn't give religion much thought, what makes the difference is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'd like us to quickly open up those verses and draw lessons. The first thing we see is that the death of Jesus Christ is the only basis of acceptance into God's kingdom, both for Jews and Gentiles. The death of Jesus Christ is the only basis of acceptance into God's kingdom, both for Jews and Gentiles. Verse 20 through to verse 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus Christ. This request by the Gentiles or the Greeks highlights the basis of our acceptance into God's kingdom. It shows to us that what causes us to be accepted in God's kingdom or the basis, the only basis of our acceptance is the Lord Jesus Christ. And John is so quick, but also is so clear and careful to record that among those who went to the feast to worship, some of those were Gentiles. These Greeks had gone to worship at the feast. And when you read what John is saying to us, he's basically saying that these Greeks that had gone to this feast, they were accustomed to come and worship at these feasts at these events. They were not curious visitors. Neither were they one-off investigators to try and see what was it that was happening. No doubt these were God-fearing Greeks who would attend the the Jewish synagogues and they had not yet been converted to the Jewish system of worship. They were not yet proselytes who are basically Gentiles who have been converted uh, to the Jewish way of worship. And so these were not Greek-speaking Jews. They were Gentiles who had no connections with the Jewish nation, the Jewish customs, they were more like the Ethiopian eunuch who would leave Ethiopia to go and worship in Jerusalem. They had heard about the God of the the Jews and they were drawn to this God. And John states that these Greeks approached Philip and made a request to Philip. They wanted to see Jesus. John does not record for us why they 
went to Philip in particular. Some commentators would argue that they probably went to Philip because the name Philip is a Greek name. So is Andrew. And so for this group, it was easy for them to approach and make a request through one who was familiar with them in terms of language. But also the fact that John records where Philip is from, that he was from Bethsaida in Galilee, commentators even present the argument further that most likely they could have had some previous encounter with this man. And so when they saw him in Jerusalem, it was easy for them to connect and to make a request through him about them wanting to see Jesus Christ. And so these were not simply Greeks who wanted to have a peep at the Lord Jesus Christ, who wanted to have a gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ. If that was the case, there were so many other opportunities when they, could have, they would have had looked at the Lord Jesus Christ. The request they make is a request to have some time and interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ. They recognize that they are Gentiles, and so they really did not have any special favors in as far as the Jewish customs were concerned. And so they make a request to see Jesus. And Philip asks Andrew, and Andrew and Philip goes to take the message to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the request the Greek asked was for a personal interview with Christ. But this request had its own challenges. Because remember when you read your gospel accounts, the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 15, he had instructed his disciples not to go in the ways of the Gentiles. But also the Lord Jesus Christ had, had declared in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 24 that he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so probably these were the immediate challenges that Philip and Andrew were faced with. How can these foreigners make a request to see the Lord Jesus Christ and yet our master had made it clear to us that I came to Israel. But also, the Lord Jesus Christ talked about him bringing the sheep who are out of the sheep pen as a future event, something that will happen in the, in the near future. But obviously, Philip and Andrew must have remembered also the Lord Jesus Christ when he commended the faith of the centurion at Capernaum, when he, who was a non-Jew, expressed faith in the Savior of the Jewish nation. And so this was a challenge that was posed before them. And probably Philip didn't know how to process it and asked Andrew and they took the request 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as if that is not enough, when you think of where this request is being made, it's at the worship, at the, at the worship of this worship of feasts. And it is in the temple courts, in the temple courts where hostile eyes of the Pharisees were gazed on the Lord Jesus Christ with this most vicious intent. And so to see that there's a request from the Greeks are wondering how is he going to react. And you'll see, is he going to bring them in the inner of the temple or is he going to meet with them in the outer courts of the temple? what we learn from this is that Jesus is the only basis of entrance into God's kingdom whether Jews or Gentiles. What we see from this request and even from the gospel accounts is that Jesus came into this world to save sinners whether Jews or Gentiles. You recall that when the Lord Jesus Christ was born as a baby in the manger, the wise men who were the Gentiles came from afar to see this baby who was prophesied about. And all from the onset, right from his birth, we see his mission. He did not just come for Israel, but for the whole world. And Gentiles went to see this baby as the first fruits of his labors among the Gentiles. But also here, John records for us that just before the dawn of his day, who goes to see Jesus Christ? The Gentiles. A reminder that just in case the disciples and any other Jewish nationalities have forgotten his mission, right at birth, the Gentiles went, and before his death, the Gentiles go to seek an audience with the Lord Jesus Christ. As the sun, just as the setting sun sends out its most beautiful lights and shines the whole world, and its light shines the world. We see that just before the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Gentiles are being drawn to him. Right at his, from his birth and before his death, Gentiles come to the Lord Jesus Christ to seek him. But also see that this was a personal and intimate request. Sir, we want to see Jesus. They are not simply saying, we want to peep at Jesus. We want to have a glance at Jesus. We probably want to show also that we were with Jesus. No, they were requesting if they could find time. And close themselves from everyone and interact with the Lord Jesus Christ. Their souls were longing to meet him and to have time with him. And they cry out to Philip, we want to see Jesus Christ. 
and this request that they made is a request of every true child of God. It is a request that all those who are seeking, they reach the point where they realize that if they desire to see Jesus, not simply a Jesus who performs miracles, not simply Jesus as a blesser, but they desire to see Jesus as the Savior of the world, the one who their souls longs for. They desire to have a personal and intimate relationship with the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've never been brought to this point where everything within you goes out of its way and cries out, I want to see Jesus, then you don't know what it means to be saved from your sins. Not until you reach that point where Christ becomes sweeter and beautiful, attractive, that you are willing to forego what everyone else thinks of you or what everyone will think of you and go to before this God and say, I want to see Jesus. And anyone who comes with this personal request to the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be granted to them. We want to see Jesus. But the second thing we see is that the death of Jesus Christ is the basis of his glorification. The death of Jesus Christ is the basis for his glorification. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His death was to be the basis of his glorification. The request from the, the Greeks for this personal and intimate audience with Jesus steers the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ opens up his heart and says, the hour has come. And we hear nothing further about the Greeks from the Gospel of John. We don't even know if their, their request was granted to them. But John sees that of little importance compared to the statements he records for us from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Upon hearing the request that was presented to Jesus, instead of Jesus responding to them or saying, let them wait for an hour, I'll talk to them, he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in the statement of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are three significant components in his declaration. And all these are connected to his mission his person, and his work. The first thing we see 
is that he says his hour has come. And this is to say that his mission was about to be completed. His mission was about to come to a completion. Previously, in the gospel, and particularly in the gospel of John, he would always say his hour had not yet come. You remember the occasion in the wedding at Cana? When they ran out of wine, and, they, and, and Mary said to the disciples, do whatever he tells you, he said, woman, my time has not yet come. In chapter 4, when I was talking to the woman of Samaria, he said, a time is coming when people will not worship on the mountain. And the true worshippers will worship in truth and in spirit. And so when you read also in chapter 7 and chapter 8, the Lord Jesus Christ would always refer to this moment, this hour, as to something that will happen in the near future. But now, in this, moment, in this particular passage, John records for us that when the request came to the Lord Jesus Christ, he now says his time has come, the hour has come. And from this point to Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ will present himself as the time has come for him to be glorified. When you read in chapter 12 and verse 7, chapter 13 and verse 1, and chapter 17 and verse 1, Jesus would record from this point onwards, the hour has come. And when he was praying in John 17, he would pray to his father. Father, the time has come. Glorify me. And so we see that from this point onwards, that the Lord, whenever the Lord Jesus Christ would act, his enemies would react. Because Christ knew the time has come. He's fixed his gaze to Jerusalem and nothing is going to stand in his way. His mission is about to be complete. But secondly, we see he identifies himself as the son of man. He says the hour has come for the son of man. And again, that statement gives window to his personality to it, or to his person. Jesus identifies himself 80 times in the Gospels as the Son of Man. When you read the Gospel of John, Luke, Mark, and Matthew, he identifies himself not less than 80 times as the Son of Man. And this title is drawn from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. When you read Daniel chapter 7, you see Daniel describes a divine being who comes to God the Father, who is referred to as the Ancient of Days. And this divine being 
receives a dominion over the earth and an endless kingdom. And so when Jesus says he is the son of man, any Jew, Jew knew what he meant. It would take them to Daniel and he's basically saying, yes, the vision that Daniel saw, I have come. But also the fact that this title, the son of man, is rarely used in the Old Testament. And now coupled with the fact that it, is, it was Jesus' favorite title, as it were, for himself, highlights his messianic character and claim that he was the Messiah who came, the Son of Man, who was to die for the forgiveness of sin. But also see the third component there. In speaking of the hour, Jesus is speaking of him. He's being glorified. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he refers to his work as the God-man. He refers to himself as the one who came to die. As the one who came to be a, the, the reconciler between God and man. As the one who was from eternity and took upon himself the human form. And he says, the son of man to be glorified. And as the Lord Jesus Christ talks of his glorification, he is speaking of his death. But now the time has come for him to die. And as he gives up his life as a representative of his people, he came in this world and took upon the sins of the world. But he also fulfilled the law of God in all its demands. And now that time is coming when he will give up his life. And on the third day, he will be raised from the dead and will be seated at the right hand of his Father and will be given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's saying, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so we see that the death of Christ was the basis for his glorification. And the death of Christ is part of the, the work of redemption. And this work of redemption forms the basis of his glorification. And the death of Christ is inseparable from the redemption of the Gentiles. He came to save sinners... Jews and Gentiles. And the coming in of the Gentiles, Christ says his time has come. Christ's willingness to humble himself and take upon himself the form of man, his perfect obedience to his father, 
His willingness to lay down his life and to drink in the wrath of God. His resurrection and exhortation to the right hand of God. His receiving all authority in heaven and on earth. His gathering of the Gentiles and peoples from every type and, and language. is the basis for his glorification. He had accomplished his task just as the Father had sent him. And now he's being exalted to the glory that he had before eternity passed. Oh, the glory he had in eternity passed. And here we see the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, Until I die, this glorification will not happen. And so what this simply means is that the salvation of sinners is part of the glorification of the Son of God. This reminds us and shows us that he had accomplished his task. He had finished his race. He had won the battle. And each time you hear of one turning away from their sins, it is because of the fact that the Son of God came, the Son of Man came, he died, he was glorified, and he is accomplishing salvation for all those who believe. The birth, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ forms part of his glorification. He humbled himself. He lived in this world. He died on the cruel cross. And the Father has given him a name above all names. And is now glorified in the highest of heavens. And the salvation of Gentiles the salvation of sinners must remind us that Christ accomplished his task. In the third place, we see that the death of Christ was necessary. The death of Christ was necessary. Verse 24 to 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone saves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone saves me, the Father will honor him. The Lord Jesus Christ illustrates the fact that he's going to die by using this idea of the planted seeds and the, the, the crops that comes as a result of that. And the Lord Jesus Christ is emphasizing the absolute necessity of his death. And he uses this 
botanical language from the field of plants. And he says, the true worth or glory of, of, a, of a grain seed is only seen when it's put in the ground and then it begins to blossom and produces fruit. And Christ is saying, not until I die, I'm buried, and I'm raised from the grave, will you see the fruit of my labors. The cross, the cross of Christ is the supreme demonstration of God's love for the world. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, no matter how healthy a grain of wheat is, its true glory lies in its death. Its death is not its end, but it leads to the multiplication through reproduction. As it begins to germinate and grow and reaches maturity and begins to produce fruit, you begin to see the glory and the worth of that small grain that was put in the ground. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying, the supreme demonstration of love will be seen on the cross when I die. And through my death, my Father will draw many to himself. And through my death, the Holy Spirit will be poured forth upon the world. And people, Jews and Gentiles, will be drawn to me in faith and in repentance. And the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is making is that his death is necessary to produce many more Christ-like individuals in this world. Unless he dies, his death was necessary to produce many Christ-like people in this world because his death demonstrates the love of God, the wisdom of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God. His death demonstrates that God is serious when it comes to this issue of sin. His death demonstrates that not until you come to Christ in faith and in repentance, you will die in your sins. Oh, what great mercy we see on the cross. Oh, what mercy that God has in eternity past ordained that the salvation of men and women, boys and girls, will result in the glorification of his son. But it also will result in demonstrating his love for the world. Christ had to die. Sin had to be atoned for. 
without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The atoning death of Christ is necessary, for there is no salvation outside the death of Christ. The purpose of the death of Jesus Christ was to accomplish salvation for all who will come to him in faith and in repentance. Only Christ can generate life for others, eternal life. And he did that by giving up his own life. Eternal life is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not found in religious activities. It's not found in anything outside of Christ. Eternal life is found in the person, and it is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you benefited from the death of Christ? You can only benefit from his death if you give up self, if you give up rebellion, if you give up sin and come to him in faith and in repentance. He laid down his life that you may find life and life in its abundance. The purpose of the death of Christ was to show that whether Jews or Gentiles, churchgoers or unchurched, religious people or unreligious people, the basis of acceptance into God's kingdom is in Christ alone. And I'd like to ask you, as we come to a close, and as you hear the rest of God's people singing that song of assurance, that song of joy, that song that reminds us of the fact that in Christ alone is our hope, I want you to ask yourself a question. Do I know this hope? Do I know this hope? Or will I continue to join God's people who've experienced this hope and yet I join them and I sing in vain? When my life is in misery, I continue to wallow in sin. I know nothing of this hope. And if that's your state, today this hope can be yours. If you come to Christ in faith and in repentance, he has accomplished salvation and he's been glorified. And now the time is coming when God will give him the ends of the earth as his reward. And he will crush you and he will usher you into the lake of fire. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life. He is my life. The hymn writer goes on to say, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Why? 
because my hope is in Christ. And it is in that hope that I will stand and I will wait for him. That even when the schemes of man are thrown at me, even when the evil one reminds me of my sins, I will look to the cross and I hear my Savior saying, I have accomplished it for you. And you can rejoice because no fear of death, no schemes of man can ever pluck you from my hands. And because of that, you can rejoice in that hope. And whether Christ calls you today in death, or you meet him when he returns, your hope is Christ alone. This can be your hope today. And I pray that this will be your hope today. Don't leave this place without finding this hope. Cry out, Saul, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Cry out to God. I want to see Jesus. And God will reveal Jesus to you. Amen.